Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to the UBS In The Now podcast channel as today we kick off our Decision 2022 series of conversations which will deliver you insights and perspective in the weeks leading up to and following the U.S. midterm elections in November. Joining me today for the conversation, glad to welcome back Phil Orlando of Federated Hermes. Phil serves as Chief Equity Market Strategist and Head of Client Portfolio Management and Phil has joined us many times over the years on this very forum to share with us timely and insightful perspective around the markets as well as the policy landscape. So Phil, it's great to be with you as always. Thank you for dropping by, spending some time with our listeners. Looking forward to the conversation. Welcome back. Pleasure to be back, Dan. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to share my insights here with uh, with your crew uh, going into the midterm. So thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Phil, I know we have a lot to cover with respect to the elections themselves, though. I do want to leverage your market, your portfolio management expertise, just given what we've been seeing in the market landscape over the past few weeks, and really a lot of volatility through the course of 2022 for that matter. And that's been attributed in part to rising rates, monetary policy, inflation, growth concerns, the list goes on. So curious to hear your thoughts about what we've been seeing in the markets recently. And do you believe that the U.S. midterm elections also serve as a potential market catalyst? So the the short answer is yes. Um, All of the fundamental hurdles that you mentioned are 100% true. Uh, interest rates are rising. We've got this spike in inflation, monetary policy, fiscal policy, all of that, you know, are concerns. But if you strip all of that noise and nonsense away, the fact of the matter is that it's still 2022, which is a midterm election year. And midterm election years have a very unique, distinct pattern in terms of performance, stock market performance. Uh, versus any other year. Well, what do I mean by that? Um, we, we've studied 75 years of data on, on this question. And if you look at the long-term history of the S&P 500, uh, based upon uh, very strong U.S. economic growth and corporate earnings growth, the stock market over the last 75 years moves up and to the right. We're the greatest economy in the world. We produce great GDP growth, great corporate earnings growth, and ultimately stock prices reflect corporate earnings. But if you took that 75-year history of stock market performance and broke it down into discrete four-year blocks associated with four-year presidential election cycle and then broke those four-year blocks into quarters, you're looking at 16 quarters then. The stock market is positive over the last 75 years in 14 of those 16 quarters. But there are two quarters, the two middle quarters of year two, which is this year, which is negative every four-year cycle. Why is that? Because of the uncertainty and volatility associated with the midterm elections. Investors have made a decision on a new Congress, a new president, two years earlier. Uh, in many cases, there's a bit of buyer's remorse. Uh, that buyer's remorse is manifested in economic data and stock market performance in the middle of year two. And then investors get to go to the, uh, the polls 
vote with their feet in November of year two and then uh, execute a change in direction. And that change in direction typically results in a very powerful rally uh, in the final quarter of year two and into at least the first half of, of uh, year three. So what we're seeing here uh, is, is not unique at all. It, it sort of happens every four years. And the situation is exacerbated by the fundamental issues that you've talked about, inflation, interest rates, monetary policy, fiscal policy, growth concerns, recession, et cetera. So we live in interesting times, and uh, the midterm election year just makes it that much more interesting. Well, Phil, thank you for that very helpful context. I know around this time of an election year, the polls seem to get tighter and tighter, I'm sure, even more so as the next few weeks go on. At this point, do you have an outcome projection in mind for both houses of Congress? We do. And, and let me sort of handicap where we are. Um, House first, Senate second. Um, I, I do believe that the House is going to flip uh, from Democratic control to Republican control. And, and I want to spend a couple of minutes going through the detail on that. So if you go back to the presidential election in 2020, uh, the Democrats had a very comfortable 35-seat lead in the House that uh, the polls expected would increase to 55 seats at the end of that election. Um, the reality is that the pendulum went the other way. Democrats right now are holding a very narrow eight-seat lead uh, with three vacancies, uh, which means that if the Republicans were to pick up, you know, literally five seats, um, they'd be able to regain control of the House of Representatives. So let's get into the weeds here. We went back and looked at every first-term, midterm election in the post-war era. And what we learned is that Democratic presidents in their first midterm election, on average, have lost an average of 38 House seats in that first election. Now, remember, the Democrats right now have an eight-seat lead. We also learned that in the current election, there are 33 Democratic members of Congress who have already announced their retirement. They, they are not running for election next month. Uh, an open seat, Dan, is a much easier seat to win than a contested seat. We then went back and looked at uh, the two most recent first-term Democratic presidents who were very popular. How, how did they do in their first midterms? Bill Clinton, in 1994, lost 52 seats in his first midterm election. Barack Obama, in 2010, lost 63 seats in his first midterm election. Now, President Biden has sort of uh, poo-pooed all of that and said, not to worry, I am the second coming of LBJ. LBJ was very popular with the Great Society. That's very similar to what I'm trying to do with the Build Back Better plan. Uh, LBJ introduced Medicare, Medicaid, expanded Social Security. So think of my presidency much like LBJ's presidency. So we took him at his word. We went back and looked in 1966. How did LBJ do in his first midterm election? He lost 47 seats. So you, you put all of that data together, and it tells me that given the narrow lead that the Democrats have right now, uh, the likelihood is that we're going to see a change in control in government. Uh, additionally, I would point out that this year, 
2022 is the year in which the Census Bureau is going to implement the redistricting from the 2020 decennial census. Now, when they completed that census what, in 2020, what, they, what the Census Bureau determined is that there was a massive population migration in the United States. Uh, literally millions of Americans moved from high-tax states like California, Illinois, and New York to low- or no-tax states like Texas, Florida, the Carolinas, Tennessee, etc. The Census Bureau's conclusion was that as a result of those population shifts, um, Republicans picked up six net seats, and that six net seat gain will be implemented in the redistricting of next month's election. So you put all of that together, and, and my best guess is the, the, the House of Representatives flips over to Republican control. Um, looking at the Senate, um, I've got a somewhat different view. I think the Democrats are in pretty good shape at the Senate. Uh, and it's, again, the same sort of mathematical uh, assessment. Uh, the Senate right now is tied 50-50. Uh, you've got 35 seats up for grabs in this election. Uh, Republicans are defending seven more seats. 21 seats up for grabs versus 14 for the Democrats. And you've got five Republican senators who have already announced their retirement. They are not running for election. Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania, Rob Portman in Ohio, Richard Burr in North Carolina, Richard Shelsby in Alabama, and Roy Blunt in Missouri. Again, an open seat is a much easier seat to win than an incumbent seat. So, again, my best guess is that the Democrats will probably hold on to a narrow Senate majority, but I do think the House, uh, in all likelihood, will flip over to uh, Republican control. Well, Phil, thank you for sharing your perspective on what the landscape looks like today and for running through the factors that inform your projections. I know over the years when these election cycles happen, we oftentimes hear about these October surprises, swing factors that may sway voters who might be on the fence at this moment in time. Any that come to mind, swing factors, Phil, that you're keeping an eye on? Oh, no question. No question. And, uh, and what I would do here is look at sort of what are the key talking points that Republican candidates and Democratic candidates are using to try to, you know, curry for favor with their constituents. And, and Republican talking points first. Their focus, in my opinion, on sort of kitchen table, pocketbook kind of issues that appeal to the average American. So, a typical Republican talking point might include the spike in inflation, the surge in energy prices, uh, the 90% decline in uh, the pace of vaccinations over the last 18 months, uh, the southern border crisis. We've got like 2.1 million illegal aliens that have crossed over the border just uh, over the course of the last year, the baby formula shortage, uh, the Afghanistan withdrawal, the discussions with regard to the Iranian nuclear deal, uh, the Russian-Ukraine war, uh, the Saudi oil debacle, where the, the OPEC plus uh, has cut production by two million barrels a day, uh, the increase in crime and the decline in education quality uh, in school districts, uh, you know, all over the, uh, the country. Now, that said, the Democrats... Uh, 
to a significant degree, you're conceding those points and saying this election is about a series of social issues. So they've done, the Democrats have, in my opinion, a brilliant job of, of changing the narrative. And, and they've got their base focused, in, in a sense, almost weaponized on the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision on, on Roe v. Wade. Uh, they have also elevated the question of the safety of democracy in this country by keeping former President Trump in the news through the January 6th insurrection hearings, as well as the Mar-a-Lago document raid. Uh, and then they continue to make uh, points uh, with climate change, using, for example, uh, the recent Hurricane Ian, uh, which which was, was just horrifically tragic, killing more than 100 people in Florida, more than $100 billion worth of damage, and, and ascribing that damage, those deaths, uh, to the climate change problem. So you've got two sets of very difficult, very different, very important talking points. And the reality is that over the course of the last, say, three or four months, uh, the Democrats have done better. President Biden has done better in the polls uh, on the key issues. So the Democrats, I think, are doing a good job in changing the narrative. The question is, do we have enough track left in order for them to uh, hold on to their narrow majority in the House? So, Phil, as you alluded to a bit earlier, and we've been hearing more and more about this in the media as of late, a lot of tight races out there, especially with respect to the Senate races. What are some key states to watch for? Any battleground demographics to be mindful of? And I know you hit on factors a few moments ago, such as the rise in energy prices, inflation, crime, so on and so forth. But what do you feel really matters to voters this cycle as they go to the polls on Election Day? You asked a very important, very good question. If you look at the different Senate races around the country, as I said, there are 35 Senate races that are being waged. There are probably a half a dozen that matter. You know, I would throw Pennsylvania, Ohio, New Hampshire, Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, uh, Colorado as, as the ones that I'm sort of focused on. Uh, I'm going to talk about two here because I think this is very interesting. One of the things that, that Dan, you and I have not talked about is the relative quality of the candidates themselves. And this is something that, that I think both parties could do a much better job uh, vetting candidates uh, for these important higher offices. Um, I want to focus on two races, Pennsylvania and Georgia. So you look at Pennsylvania. Uh, we've got a retirement there. All right, Pat Toomey, uh, who uh, a very successful longtime Republican senator, uh, has announced his retirement. So it's an open seat. You know, open seats a jump ball. Um, the Democrats put up a candidate uh, by the name of Fetterman, and you, you can like him or not like him. I'm not going to offer an opinion in that regard, but uh, Mr. Fetterman, within the last year, uh, has suffered a serious debilitating stroke to the point that there are questions about his mobility, his ability to speak, his ability to function. Uh, and he has refused to debate the Republican candidate, who was a TV personality, Dr. Oz. Now, again, you like or dislike Dr. Oz's positions on different issues, but he's a, you know, he's got an MD, he's an intelligent guy, he's well-educated, he's articulate, 
and uh, I think would present well uh, if um, you know placed into a debate with someone who's unable to speak coherently because of his physical limitations. So my question is, the people of Pennsylvania, um, what sort of representation are they looking for? There's no real expectation that Mr. Fetterman uh, is going to be materially improved over time uh, in terms of, of this tragic stroke that he suffered. So the, the, the quality of the candidate here matters. Uh, looking at Georgia, uh, same sort of issue that uh, the Reverend Ralph Warnock is the Democratic candidate. He's an articulate guy, a bright guy. He looks like he's done a reasonable job. Uh, you can agree or disagree with his policy positions, but that's a matter of personal taste. The Republicans put up uh, a football hero, uh, Herschel Walker. He was a star running back for the University of Georgia, so a lot of local appeal. But in the instances that I've seen uh, uh, Mr. Walker uh, present to the media, uh, he's not a terribly articulate guy, not a, a terribly uh, strong intellect. So, again, you, you take a, a reverend, someone who's, uh, you know, very articulate to the podium, versus, uh, in this case, uh, a football player who's not particularly articulate, uh, and, and maybe uh, suffering from some sort of uh, uh, brain disorders based upon the uh, physical activity that he experienced as a college and a professional football player. Uh, again, was that the best candidate for the Republicans to put up to try to win that race? So, again, quality of a candidate is, you know, maybe it's something that's in the eye of the beholder, uh, but, but uh, you know, both teams could have... Uh, uh, maybe could have and should have put up better candidates in some of these key races. Well, Phil, a lot of interesting considerations there with respect to Pennsylvania and Georgia. You mentioned a few other Senate races across the country as well to keep an eye on. Maybe if we pivot back to the investment side of things, can you take a few moments, Phil, maybe walk us through the investment implications of various outcomes, whether we see a Republican-controlled Congress, a Democrat-controlled Congress, or perhaps a split? So the, the key issue here is whether or not uh, the voters decide on unified Democratic government for another two years, uh, or if they reintroduce split government, divided government, uh, gridlock, uh, the creation of a legislative check and balance. And, and, and ultimately, that's the answer to your question, Dan. The stock market is down 25% this year, in, in my view, as the chief equity strategist of the firm, uh, because the fiscal policy decisions that have been made over the last few years have contributed significantly to the worst inflation we've seen in 40 years. And the Federal Reserve now has found religion and is uh, trying to stuff that inflation genie back into the bottle. But in order to achieve that, what the Federal Reserve needs to do as it manifests the, the, the so-called Phillips curve trade-off in order to get inflation from 9% back to their target of 2%, the Federal Reserve has made a decision that they need to, to pay a price, and that price is higher levels of unemployment and slower economic growth. And maybe that slower economic growth manifests, manifests itself in a recession at, at some point over the course of the next year or two. Um, so 
the, the question from my perspective is if the Republicans regain, let's say, the House, you know, one one element of the bicameral legislature in Congress that introduces successfully a legislative check and balance gridlock. In this instance, gridlock is good because what that means is that the the fiscal policies, which I've been very critical of in terms of their relation to inflation, uh, have to stop. That they, they won't get passed in the Congress. That's good. I think the market rallies on that. Uh, alternatively, uh, the Democrats believe that they are doing really well in the polls the last couple of months. They are. The numbers absolutely confirm that. Uh, is there enough track left that the Democrats are able to achieve their objectives such that they maintain consolidated control of government for another two years? If that were the case, and if we were to continue to see more of these inflationary fiscal policies, which I believe would require the Federal Reserve to continue to be as aggressive in raising interest rates, shrinking the balance sheet, and trying to combat that inflation, uh, I think that that would allow the, 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 the economy to continue moving in the same direction, that would be a glide path into an outright recession. Uh, economic growth down, corporate earnings down, uh, price earnings multiples would contract because of the higher inflation and higher interest rates, uh, stock prices lower. Uh, I believe Jamie Dimon from uh, uh, J.P. Morgan yesterday uh Painting a similar picture talked about on top of the 25% decline we've seen in stocks already this year, uh, he's talked about the potential for another 20% down. So the, the stakes from a financial market perspective, I believe, are high. And, uh, you know, the outcome uh, clearly uncertain. So, you know, maybe it's a hyperbole that this is the most important election of our lives. Uh, certainly midterm election, but I, I think there are significant implications uh, from a policy standpoint, an economic standpoint, and a financial market standpoint in terms of, you know, getting, getting, getting good results, which in my opinion would, would, uh, would, be, would be getting divided government. Well, no question, a lot of uncertainty with respect to the market environment over the next few months and heading into 2023. Just running with policy as we begin to close out, Phil, I realize this might be a difficult question because a lot needs to play out before we have a clear picture as to what the policy path forward may look like as we head into the new year. Though any policy expectations, focuses, even bipartisan initiatives that come in mind for 2023 that we can look forward to or that we should be mindful of? Dan, that, that is such an incredibly timely question coming today because something happened this morning, which would sort of shock me. Um, I'll give you the punchline first, which is that Tulsi Gabbard announced her resignation from the Democratic Party. Well, who is Tulsi Gabbard? Uh, she was a, a congressperson from Hawaii, a Democrat. Uh, a military hero. And you may remember, Dan, she was one of the 25 or so candidates who ran for president in 2020. Obviously, she didn't win. Uh, president Biden won. Uh, but she is someone that, in watching the debates back in 2020, I was extraordinarily impressed with her articulation skills and her thought process. She was a very thoughtful woman who I thought had had excellent, moderate, 
fiscal policy uh, solutions to many of the problems that we dealt with. Well, she didn't get much traction, and she ended up losing the election. But this morning, she announced her departure from the Democratic Party, and and she was scathing in talking about uh, a lot of the policy directions that, that, that the Biden administration and Democrats in Congress have taken the party over the last two years with, with not great results in terms of slowdown in economic growth and, and, and corporate earnings growth and, and, and stock market performance. So as I bring that back to the policy expectations for calendar 23, it, it is our belief that the U.S. economy, based upon the policies we've seen in 21 and 22, is that we are on a glide path into certainly slower economic growth, maybe, maybe recession. Uh, and so the question then again becomes, what's the makeup of Congress after this election in a month? And, and uh, what does the economy look like over the next two years? And then ultimately, what happens to the presidential election in 24? Now, we went, we've got a presidential election model that's gone back again over the last 75 years. And one of the key variables here is whether or not an economy goes into recession based upon policy prescriptions. And, and historically, when the economy does go into recession, the American people tend to hold the administration and the Congress accountable for that. So that would suggest that, that we could be looking at a change in control in White House leadership in calendar 24 if, in fact, the, um, uh, the economy does slide into recession. So from a policy standpoint, then, Knowing that historical outcome, you might expect uh, some attempt by the, the Biden administration to stimulate the economy through policy in calendar 23 and 24 leading into the presidential election. Uh, if you've got divided government, you're likely to see some pushback uh, from the Republicans in Congress. If you've got consolidated Democratic control, you may see more uh, deficit spending to try to stimulate the economy, trying to, you know, buy some votes, if you will, going into that election. So again, a lot depends upon the outcome of this election in, in, in a month, uh, and, and, and the trajectory of the U.S. economy. Do we simply slow or, or do we go into an outright recession? And that has significant implications for the presidential election in 24. And I think to a large degree, will we'll drive process and policy over the course of the next two years. Well, Phil Orlando, thank you very much for dropping by today. Always a pleasure conversing with you, hearing your perspective. Thank you again for sharing your perspective with our audience. So more conversations to be had. But Phil, thank you again for your time and insights today. Always appreciate it. Dan, it was my pleasure. Thank you again very much. UBS Financial Services, Inc., or its affiliates and its employees are not affiliated with any third-party speakers mentioned. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreement 
statements and disclosures that we provide to you about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at UBS.com forward slash Relationship Summary or ask your UBS Financial Advisor for a copy.